Hello, Kindred Spirits. Thank you for joining us today on Kindred Spirits Book Club, the podcast where two grown-ass ladies geek out about Anne of Green Gables. I'm Kelly Gurner, joined by my co-host, Reagan Duffy. Hello, Kindred Spirits. Today, we're going to be wrapping up our thematic coverage of Anne of Avonlea by discussing Anne and romance. But first, Reagan, I've been looking at the Hollywood Bulls summer calendar, and I'm so excited (laughs) about this year's programming. For those who don't live in Los Angeles, the Hollywood Bowl is an enormous outdoor amphitheater built into the Hollywood Hills. On warm summer nights, there is nothing better than packing a picnic and listening to amazing music at the Bowl. Their programming really runs the gamut. It includes like classical and jazz, Broadway and standards, throwback bands and new music, and lots of fun pop culture moments. They'll show the Harry Potter or Star Wars movies with full orchestral accompaniment, or they do a sing-along sound of music every year, complete with costume contest. They also have an amazing 4th of July show with fireworks, which my husband and I attend every year since that's also our anniversary. (laughs) They're doing Mendelssohn's Midsummer Night's Dream with the LA Master Chorale. Wow, that sounds amazing. It's going to be really, really beautiful and just like a perfect setting outside under the stars during midsummer. <laughs> uh huh. Well, you get the sunset going over the Hollywood Bowl. It truly is kind of a magical experience. Another one I'm pretty excited about is the Japanese composer Joe Hisaishi, who is known for scoring Hayao Miyazaki's films. He's going to be coming, conducting a concert of his music. So, like those beautiful themes from like Howl's Moving Castle. It's going to be, oh, so gorgeous. That sounds amazing. Uh, So Reagan, have you also spent the week pouring over the Hollywood Bulls programming list or tell me about other summer traditions that you guys love? Well, I'm certainly not as in-depth as you have, but we have definitely enjoyed many Hollywood Bowl nights during our summers for sure. And I was thinking when my sister is visiting, maybe there's a John Williams concert night and those are great all ages crowd pleasers. So that is a possibility for us to do while she is visiting. But for other summer activities that we really look forward to, we live really close to the beach. It's only about a five minute drive from our house. So our summers involve plenty of beach time. And one of the benefits that I really like now about working from home and having a more flexible schedule with a private practice is that I can take my daughter Alice to the beach in the morning before it gets crowded. So sometimes it's just the two of us and we bring books and breakfast and we just have some quiet hangout time together. Donuts on the beach is one of our favorite summer traditions. Oh, I love that so much. I want to crash someday. I live so far from the beach though. Yes. I have to wake up so early to meet you there. You can spend the night. Spend the night the way we do it. Spend the night and then we could do donuts on the beach in the morning. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Sometimes we meet friends there and then the kids just boogie board for hours while the parents catch up, which is great. The Pacific Ocean is never warm enough for me to want to swim in it, (laughs) but the kids don't seem to mind. And we did get Alice a wetsuit a few years ago, and that was a game changer. It definitely helps her stay in the water for hours on end boogie boarding until her lips are blue. So we'll definitely plan for some of that this summer, I think. I grew up pretty close to the beach. I remember spending hours and hours in the water and yeah, you're so cold, but you're having so much fun, right? So today's episode is going to close the Anne of Avonlea circle of themes based on Anne's three core virtues, dazzlingly clever, divinely beautiful, and angelically good. 
We discussed Anne's pursuit of goodness through her community connections. We unpacked Anne's ambition and intelligence as she embarks on a new career. And now we're going to get into the ways that Anne experiences romance and beauty in Anne of Avonlea. For Anne, being divinely beautiful has always been tied to being lovable. If you haven't listened to our previous episode on Anne and vanity, give it a listen because we explored that theme deeply there. Anne has always seen beauty as a sort of shorthand for love, and she was convinced as a child that she'd never experience romance because she thought herself too ugly. And while Anne has grown since then, and the unconditional love from Matthew, Marilla, and Diana has let her think of herself as lovable, she still highly prizes physical beauty, even as her experience of beauty broadens and still thinks of romance as something in storybooks and daydreams, not yet as part of her life. Our kindred spirit of the episode is Miss Lavender, who may even be the patron saint of romance in this book. Lavender Lewis is a sweet, whimsical woman who lives in a fairy tale stone cottage tucked away in the woods. When Anne and Diana encounter Miss Lavender for the first time, we see that she and her servant, Charlotta IV, have laid the table for company tea with six place settings, even though they were not expecting guests. Proof to Anne that Miss Lavender also imagines things, thus a true kindred spirit. Miss Lavender was, quote, a little lady with snow white hair, beautifully wavy and thick and carefully arranged in becoming puffs and coils. Beneath it was an almost girlish face, pink cheeked and sweet lipped with big soft brown eyes and dimples, actually dimples. Diana says that Miss Lavender doesn't look like an old maid. Anne says that Miss Lavender looks like music sounds. And Miss Lavender's biography is part of local legend. When she was young, Miss Lavender had a grand amour with Stephen Irving until they quarreled and he went away to marry an American. At the end of Anne of Avonlea, Stephen Irving returns and reintroduces them and Mr. Irving and Miss Lavender pick up where they left off, a perfect arc of a second chance romance. Our quote of the episode eloquently and evocatively describes the relationship that Anne cultivated with Miss Lavender in this book. It's a fascinating intergenerational friendship because Anne is 17 and Miss Lavender is 45, but they share a rich common ground. The text tells us that, quote, between Anne and Miss Lavender had sprung up one of those fervent, helpful friendships possible only between a woman who has kept the freshness of her youth in her heart and soul and a girl whose imagination and intuition supplied the place of experience. Anne had at last discovered a real kindred spirit while into the little lady's lonely, sequestered life of dreams, Anne and Diana came with the wholesome joy and exhilaration of the outer existence, which Miss Lavender, the world forgetting by the world forgot, had long ceased to share. They brought an atmosphere of youth and reality to the little stone house. So let's jump right into our story club today and talk about Anne and romance. When discussing the theme of romance, in particular as it applies to one Anne Shirley, there are always two ways of looking at it. First, Anne has this romantic outlook, one in which she is always experiencing the world in terms of what is most interesting and special. I think we might call that Anne's main character energy, her inclination to romanticize her life and the lives of the people around her, and her deep appreciation for beauty and imagination. Secondly, in Anne of Avonlea, we also have the first glimmers of romance in terms of romantic affection, desire, and love. And while Anne is not quite ready to receive romantic love, We'll get into why we think that is. She is surrounded by it in this book, as some of the people who are most dear to her find love. Today, we'll talk about both forms of romance and how they come into conflict when Anne's romantic ideals meet the actual opportunities for romantic connection in her life. One pleasure of Anne of Avonlea is seeing how Anne's imaginative fancies have matured along with her. 
Now she's every bit as whimsical as she was as a child, but she's left behind some of the escapism she used as a coping mechanism in favor of pure appreciation of the world around her. Early in the book, as Anne and Diana set out to canvas for the AVIS, they have this exchange. Oh, this is a day left over from Eden, isn't it, Diana? Anne sighed from the sheer happiness. The air has magic in it. Look at the purple in the cup of that Harvest Valley, Diana, and oh, do smell the dying fur. Bliss is it on such a day to be alive, but to smell dying fur is very heaven. That's two-thirds Wordsworth and one-third Anne Shirley. It doesn't seem possible there should be dying fur in heaven, does it? And yet, it doesn't seem to me that heaven would be quite perfect if you couldn't get a whiff of dead fur as you went through its woods. Perhaps we'll have the odor there without the death. Yes, I think that will be the way. That delicious aroma must be the souls of the furs. And of course, it will be just souls in heaven. Trees haven't souls, said practical Diana, but the smell of dead fur is certainly lovely. I'm going to make a cushion and fill it with fur needles. You better make one too, Anne. I think I shall, and use it for my naps. I'd be certain to dream I was a dryad or a wood nymph then, but just this minute I'm well content to be Anne Shirley, Avonlea school ma'am, driving over a road like this on such a sweet, friendly day. Here, Anne is whimsical and poetic, rejoicing in the beautiful day and her fanciful ideas, but she's also happy and content to be herself, not wishing she was someone grander or that there was something more exciting happening to her. And we see this in her enchanting spring birthday picnic. It's so easy to be happy on a day like this, isn't it? Anne was saying with true Annish philosophy. Let's try to make this a really golden day, girls. A day to which we can always look back with delight. We're to seek beauty and refuse to see anything else. That's almost a motto for Anne in this book. To seek beauty and refuse to see anything else. And we are happy for Anne that she's at a point in her life where she can do exactly that. But of course, it isn't realistic over time. On the day of the picnic, Diana, Jane, and Priscilla gamely explored the landscape, appreciated cherry trees in bloom, and swung their hats on their arms and wreathed their hair with the creamy, fluffy blossom. We see that all the girls are enjoying the glorious day, but Anne is truly in her element, and that the loveliness of the world around her is nourishing her imaginative soul. Anne is seeing poems in shafts of sunlight, dancing around ponds, drinking stream water from birch bark cups, and she is utterly enthralled by the story of Hester Gray when they stumble upon her abandoned garden. If you don't recall the story, Hester Gray was a beautiful young bride brought to Prince Edward Island by her adoring young husband, Jordan. She was shy and reclusive and loved nothing more than tending to her garden, but she died of consumption after four years of marriage, and she died smiling in her garden, surrounded by roses and attended by her loving husband. This chapter, A Golden Picnic, is a perfect touchstone for where Anne is in her romantic life. She is still very much living in a world of fantasy romance, of capital R romance like the poetry of Byron and Keats and Tennyson, where spring flowers and whispering trees and secret gardens and mysterious ponds are the greatest treasures. And romantic love between two people is best left for tragic stories of beautiful young newlyweds who were torn apart by death. Anne's devotion to Hester Gray's story illustrates how she still thinks of love and romance as a story, not as something pertinent to herself as yet. She thrills to the beauty of the story as if it was in a book, being sure that a few years of perfect happiness were well worth the early death. That's definitely the idea of someone for whom her own death and her own romance are abstract and far away. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you have to be 17 to think of that as a romantic ideal. It's so funny because I was thinking about this a little earlier today. 
because I happened to hear one of my favorite songs from when I was 17. Do you know Pearl Jam's cover of Last Kiss? Probably if I heard it. I think you would. It was pretty popular like in the late 90s. Anyway, it was originally written by Wayne Cochran in 1961, first made famous by J. Frank Wilson and the Cavaliers in 1963. And it's basically this song about a young couple out on a date on a dark road on a rainy night who get into a car accident and the girlfriend dies. The boyfriend, who is the singer, ends the song by like pledging his eternal fidelity to her, saying that he will endeavor to be good for the rest of his life so he can be with her in heaven. Yes. 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 I it's totally know that song. Now I hear it in my head. 100%. Yep. Mm-hmm. She's gone to heaven, so I got to be good. Yep. So I can see my baby when I leave this world. Okay. Reagan, I loved that song in high school. (laughs) Like Anne, I thought it was the absolute peak of romance. So I get Anne's fascination with Hester Gray. But what's interesting to note is that like my young self in loving that song, for Anne, Hester Gray's story is almost the same as seeing dryads and fairies in the shifting sunlight and bubbling creeks. It's a story, a legend, a fairy tale. She isn't thinking of Hester and Jordan as real people. And she's not thinking about what it truly means to be in love with another person and how painful loss can be. But we do know that real romance is afoot in Avonlea. Oh, yeah. The AVIS has provided lots of opportunities for the young people of Avonlea to spend time together, and there are connections and flirtations and small courtship intrigues for many of them, though not for Anne. We hear her complain to Diana that she's rather put off by her old friend Ruby Gillis and Ruby's constant flirtations and bows of the day. Ruby thinks of courtship as a game, and idealistic Anne finds that shallow and vain. We also see Anne rhapsodize about friendship and what it means to her to Mrs. Allen. If we have friends, we should look only for the very best in them and give them the best that is in us, don't you think? Then friendship would be the most beautiful thing in the world. Friendship is very beautiful, smiled Mrs. Allen. But someday, then she paused abruptly. In the delicate white-browed face beside her, with its candid eyes and mobile features, there was still far more of the child than of the woman. Anne's heart so far harbored only dreams of friendship and ambition, and Mrs. Allen did not wish to brush the bloom from her sweet unconsciousness, so she left her sentence for the future years to finish. Mrs. Allen is so canny here, isn't she? From her vantage point, several years into a happy marriage, Mrs. Allen values romantic connection and, of course, wants that for her young friend Anne, eventually. Eventually. But she's also reading between the lines of Anne's wish that friendship be the most beautiful thing in the world. Mrs. Allen recognizes that Anne is still becoming Anne, still growing up and finding herself, and is not yet ready to contemplate a complication like romantic love. A real-life romance that Anne can get behind in Avonlea is Miss Lavender's. Anne absolutely delights in Miss Lavender's whimsy and the charming storybook setting of the Little Stone Cottage. When Anne finds out about Miss Lavender's thwarted romance with Stephen Irving, Paul Irving's father, her imagination immediately kicks into gear and she can't help but see all the romantic possibilities. And even though this involves real people with real pasts and real futures, Anne can't help but view this in terms of a story as well. When Mr. Irving asks Anne to reintroduce him to Miss Lavender, Anne thinks, yes, This was romance, the very, the real thing, with all the charm of rhyme and story and dream. In the same thought that Anne identifies this as a real romance, she also calls it a story and a dream. Even though it involves people she knows, Anne is leaning into the story and dream aspect of Miss Lavender and Mr. Irving's romance. 
Anne even refers to Mr. Irving as Prince Charming, telling Charlotta the Fourth that, quote, Prince Charming is coming tonight. He came long ago, but in a foolish moment went away and wandered afar and forgot the secret of the magic pathway to the enchanted castle, where the princess was weeping her faithful heart out for him. But at last, he remembered it again, and the princess is waiting still, because nobody but her own dear prince could carry her off. I mean, she almost sounds like she's giving a poetry recitation, doesn't she? Very much so. I mean, this is very much the intro to a fairy tale, right? Yes. I mean, Miss Lavender is her friend, but she can't help but cast her as this romantic heroine. And what's so funny is that she says all this and then Charlotta IV turns to her and says, in prose, please. <laughs> Thank you, Charlotta. Thank you for bringing us down to earth. <laughs> and Anne's like, right. An, o- an old love of hers is coming to see her tonight. Oh. <laughs> oh Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> But Anne is deeply enraptured by this charming second chance love story. And that's the way she really feels about it. It's a love story. She even cries to Charlotta once Mr. Irving has proposed to Miss Lavender. It's all so beautiful and storybookish and romantic. You can tell that Anne really feels the thrill of divine fate. How if she and Diana hadn't taken a wrong turn that day, they'd never have met Miss Lavender. And Anne would never have introduced Paul to Miss Lavender. And then Paul would never have told his father in a letter all about visiting Miss Lavender. And then Mr. Irving would have gone on thinking that Miss Lavender had married someone else. And he never would have come home to Prince Edward Island to reconnect with her. For Anne, Miss Lavender and Mr. Irving's romance is destined, like in the chivalric Arthurian romances. But of course, for Miss Lavender and Mr. Irving, this is their real life. Marilla doesn't see the romance in the situation herself. She puts it far more plainly. She says, In the first place, two young fools quarrel and turn sulky. Then Steve Irving goes to the States and after a spell gets married up there and is perfectly happy from all accounts. Then his wife dies and after a decent interval, he thinks he'll come home and see if his first fancy will have him. Meanwhile, she's been living single, probably because nobody nice enough came along to want her and they meet and agreed to be married after all. Now, where's the romance and all that? I love the way she reframes this, though. When Anne is over here writing epic poetry and drawing castles in the clouds about real-life people, Marilla sees the mundane side of their reconnection. And the thing about it is, like, both stories are correct, right? It's all in the eyes of the storyteller. Marilla's take does throw cold water on Anne's fancy, and she admits that's how it sounds in prose, but she prefers to look at it through poetry. We see that Marilla perhaps envies Anne's ability to look at life through poetry a little. There's a balance between these two perspectives, and this is the challenge for Anne. Miss Lavender's romance, perhaps because of the circumstances, or perhaps it's not between Anne's contemporaries, lets Anne indulge in all the romance her heart desires and all the poetry her imagination can conjure. But when romance starts coming for her peers, maybe too uncomfortably close to Anne herself, She finds herself let down by the earthliness of it all. She Mm. wants poetry. She wants it to be epic. Yeah, absolutely. If Tennyson wouldn't write about it, she's not interested. No. (laughs) And she knows that Tennyson is not going to write about any of the boys at Avonlea. We saw that in the way that Anne is critical of flirtatious Ruby and the other girls her age who are busy courting. And we especially see it when Anne finds out that her bosom friend, Diana, has accepted Fred Wright's proposal. When Anne first stumbles on Diana and Fred, Holding hands and having a romantic moment together, she gasps to herself, oh, it does seem so, so, so hopelessly grown up. The idea of romance when it comes to Diana, her truest friend, just doesn't seem real. 
Anne can only think of romance in grand, abstract, and poetical terms. Romance happens to heroines, princesses, and princes, to adults. Romance is big and dramatic. Anne muses to herself that night, I am glad Diana is so happy and satisfied, but when my turn comes, if it ever does, I do hope there'll be something a little more thrilling about it. But then Diana thought so too once. I heard her say time and again she'd never get engaged any pokey, commonplace way. He'd have to do something splendid to win her. But she has changed. Perhaps I'll change too. But I won't. I'm determined I won't. Oh, I think these engagements are dreadfully unsettling things when they happen to your intimate friends. Ugh, Anne, I suppose that's something of a universal experience. I know that the reality of boys my age definitely paled in comparison to my literary or cinematic crushes when I was a teenager myself. And when a good friend is actually in a relationship for the first time, well, close up, it never looks how you thought it was supposed to go. Oh, I know, right? I find this passage from Anne to be just a shade judgmental, to be honest. Anne says that Diana is merely satisfied, and she kind of insinuates that Fred has done nothing particularly splendid to win Diana. And so Anne concludes that Diana must have changed or relaxed her romantic ideals. And in fact, none of that might be true. For all we know, Fred may have utterly swept Diana off her feet, and Fred and Diana's love story might be one for the ages. Anne is just kind of biased. She doesn't think that Fred is a romantic person, probably because he's a normal guy from Avonlea and not a prince or a pirate king, right? But for her to mistrust her dear friend Diana's lived experience, when Diana tells Anne she's happy and in love, well, I really want Anne to be a better friend than that. I agree with you here. This is not Anne's best self. Just because she can't see the poetry of Diana and Fred's courtship doesn't mean it isn't there. Mm-hmm. She thinks Diana has settled when I think Diana was wise enough to be open to romance right where she is. Yes, that part. We hear Diana mention that she knows Fred isn't who she dreamed of when she was young. But now that she loves him, she couldn't imagine him any other way. He's exactly who she wants. Mm -hmm. That's really lovely. And you could certainly write some poetry about that if you had the right lens. Why do you think Anne isn't ready for romance yet? Why is she so willing to idealize someone else's romance, but when it's a contemporary or a close friend, she like recoils from it? And why is she so utterly, frustratingly unwilling to <laughs> contemplate it for herself? Well, she's not ready for romance because it's still abstract and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Her imagination is so strong, her ideals so absolute, and her sense of romance so all-encompassing that she'd rather live there for a while yet. It's a lot safer in her dream world than it would be with a real person, and right now mm -hmm. it feels more satisfying. She won't let herself entertain the prose because the lore of the poetry is so consuming. Mm -hmm. She doesn't realize it yet that it doesn't have to be either or. I think the real kind of love where you know and embrace each other's flaws, where it's sometimes messy and you sometimes have to live in the real world and argue about who does the dishes is not appealing to her yet. It's too vulnerable, really. Which makes sense. Storybook romance is all about dramatic beginnings, not what happens every day. Mm. And we do have to remember, when has Anne ever seen up close this kind of loving relationship to aspire to? Her parents died when she was a baby and there's a tragic romance to a young couple living in perfect happiness for a few years and then dying together. She certainly lived with couples who were abusive and angry before Green Gables. And Matthew and Marilla, for all the love and stability they gave Anne, 
were brother and sister and couldn't model what romance looks like in the day to day. Yeah. So all she really had was what she had read in books, right? That was the only model she had. And there's just no way that an ordinary boy from her village is ever going to live up to that. Yeah. It's interesting to think that Diana, who wisely was able to find romance right where she is, was also raised in a home with a mother and father who presumably had some kind of stable romance to model for her. Mm Mm-hmm. Anne has a vision when it comes to romance, to how things are supposed to look, and she's disappointed when it doesn't match the picture she's painted for herself. She's delighted that Mr. Irving is tall and distinguished looking, just the face for a hero of romance, Anne thought with a thrill of intense satisfaction. It was so disappointing to meet someone who ought to be a hero and find him bald or stooped or otherwise lacking in manly beauty. Anne would have thought it dreadful if the object of Miss Lavender's romance had not looked the part. It's so shallow! Part of her disappointment for Diana is that Fred Wright is very ordinary. He isn't particularly described, except we know he's not tall and slender, as Diana's childhood ideal was. Anne thinks Fred is very nice and jolly, but he's just Fred Wright. We see Anne's bias toward beauty as standing in for being loved. When Diana and Anne talk over Diana's engagement, Anne feels a bit left out and a bit let down, which comes out with a little teasing. Diana calls her on it. Good job, Diana. And Anne quickly apologizes and says that it is lovely that Diana is already planning for her, quote, homo dreams. Anne's imagination is quickly captivated by this turn of phrase, and she immediately turns to building a homo dreams of her own. She says, it was, of course, tenanted by an ideal master, tall, proud, and melancholy, but... (laughs) Oddly enough, Gilbert Blythe persisted in hanging about too, helping her arrange pictures, lay out gardens, and accomplish sundry other tasks, which a proud and melancholy man evidently considered beneath his dignity. Anne tried to banish Gilbert's image from her castle in Spain, but somehow he went on being there. I love the idea. (laughs) I know, she's dreaming up this tall, romantic, melancholy hero, and yet here's Gilbert Blythe popping up in her daydream saying, don't you think that picture would look better over here? I love it so much. And it's like, what is the tall, proud, melancholy master of the house doing? I I don't know. Is he brooding over a book someplace or pacing the the study? (laughs) He's standing on the balcony in the rain, staring off into the mist or something like that. And meanwhile, she and Gilbert are downstairs having fun playing games. (laughs) (laughs) So we can see that the possibility of real love is maybe starting to make itself known to Anne in these very last few chapters of this book. She's not ready for it and shuts down several trains of thought related to Gilbert. She thinks she's sticking to her ideals, not realizing that she's actually closing herself off to something real. And you know what? That's okay. There's no rush, Anne. There's time in the future for Anne to realize that love can be beautiful in its very ordinariness. In bits and pieces throughout the book, it's obvious to the reader that Anne's feelings for Gilbert are starting to mature a little, but she won't let herself truly think about the possibility of romance with him. For one, her perfect ideals are still far too real for her. The text tells us, In the twilight, Anne sauntered down to the Dryad's bubble and saw Gilbert Blythe coming down through the dusky, haunted wood. She had a sudden realization that Gilbert was a schoolboy no longer, and how manly he looked, the tall, frank-faced fellow with the clear, straightforward eyes and broad shoulders. Anne thought Gilbert was a very handsome lad, even though he didn't look at all like her ideal man. 
She and Diana had long ago decided what kind of man they admired, and their tastes seemed exactly similar. He must be very tall and distinguished looking, with melancholy, inscrutable eyes and a melting, sympathetic voice. There was nothing either melancholy or inscrutable in Gilbert's physiognomy. But of course, that didn't matter in a friendship. I think Gilbert is actually pretty close to Anne's ideal. She's describing him as tall and frank-faced with clear, straightforward eyes and broad shoulders. And then she says that her ideal man should also be tall, distinguished looking. I think it's a check and a check. It's this eye thing, right? She wants these melancholy eyes, not straightforward eyes. Right. Melancholy and inscrutable, right? Mysterious, which makes sense. Uh, Well, okay. Let's keep talking because I know where we're going with this, right? Okay. We've got some other spots about. Okay. I would posit that Anne is pretty close with Gilbert. She just isn't ready for it yet. She's not ready for it yet. No. So here is Anne fighting a little bit with the ideal that she has imagined. And she has imagined him so often in such detail, he feels almost real to her. We can contrast this with Diana, who has always been more practical and grounded and also has not needed her imagination to survive the way that Anne has. Right. Diana can easily grow out of her daydreams. Diana's daydreams were fun and exciting when she was a child, but she never had to rely on her dreams the way that Anne did in her early years. Diana's Mm. dreams are easier to let go of and make way for a romance that's real and grounded. Anne, by contrast, imagined herself friends with such fervor and emotion that these imaginary girls were as real to her as anyone she actually knew, realer Mm. even. Because only in Anne's imaginings could she be open and vulnerable and safe and loved. Anne's daydreams of romance are much more real to her and safer to her than a romance with an actual person with opinions and experiences of his own. Oh, oh, I get it. Mm-hmm. I get the eye thing now, right? If she can look in Gilbert's eyes and see straightforward opinions, he has his own personality, his own thoughts and beliefs. That's a real person. That's someone she actually has to reckon with. That's someone she has to negotiate with. That's someone she has to be a real human being with. If it is inscrutable, melancholy man. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> staring out into the rain that's he's he's just up there on his turret doing his thing she yeah. doesn't actually have to change anything about her life for him yeah we can also see here that Anne has imagined what her ideal man looks like but not how he treats her not what her relationship with him looks like she has focused on imagining outer beauty and signifiers of romance like the sound of his voice and probably she has imagined how she would feel in a romance right lightheaded swept away overcome because her hero would be passionate and ironic and given to grand gestures Anne imagines herself as a perfect heroine in a romance too she's never hot tempered or stuck stubborn or forgetful in those daydreams. She also doesn't have freckles in those daydreams. (laughs) But she doesn't know how it would feel to actually fall in love with a real person or how to be a real person in a real relationship either. If we think back to when we first meet Anne, this is much like how she thought about friendship initially. She only had those imaginary friends before Green Gables. And when the prospect of meeting Diana arises, all Anne can think about is what her ideal best friend would look like, not what kinds of things they might have in common or what they would talk about or what like a real friendship with a real girl would look like. Now, luckily, Diana was certainly pretty enough to satisfy Anne's expectations. <laughs> And now that she and Diana have been close friends for so long, Anne doesn't have to pretend a friendship. She knows what to look for in other friends, and she knows that looks aren't the marker of what kind of friend someone might be. That experience, going from imagining an ideal friend to actually having a real friend, was a process for Anne. And she's going through that same process here. She's on a journey to go from imagining an ideal romance to actually having a real relationship. 
she's just at the very beginning of that journey. At the very end of the book, having seen Miss Lavender and Mr. Irving off after their wedding, Anne and Gilbert walk home together. As Anne waxes poetic about the romance of two people finding each other again after years apart, Gilbert remarks that it could have been more beautiful if there had never been a separation or misunderstanding, and the two of them had always walked together through life. Mm-hmm. Gilbert doesn't come right out and say it, but it's clear that he's hoping for that kind of romance with Anne. And then we hear this in the text, one of my very favorite passages. For a moment, Anne's heart fluttered queerly, and for the first time, her eyes faltered under Gilbert's gaze, and a rosy flush stained the paleness of her face. It was as if a veil that had hung before her inner consciousness had been lifted, giving to her a view, a revelation of unsuspected feelings and realities. Perhaps, after all, romance did not come into one's life with pomp and blare like a gay knight riding down. Perhaps it crept to one side like an old friend through quiet ways. Perhaps it revealed itself in seeming prose until some sudden shaft of illumination flung athwart its pages, betrayed the rhythm and the music. Perhaps, perhaps, love unfolded naturally out of a beautiful friendship as a golden-hearted rose slipping from its green sheath. Mm. Then the veil dropped again, but the Anne who walked up the dark lane was not quite the same Anne who had driven gaily down it the evening before. The page of girlhood had been turned, as by an unseen finger, and the page of womanhood was before her with all its charm and mystery, its pain and gladness. And that's such a lovely note to end the book with. Mm -hmm. We can see that Anne has much more growing to do before she will be ready for romance in the real world. She'll have to let her ideals related to romance settle into reality, much as she did her ideals about teaching. Right, right. And as we said last episode, ideals can be a guiding North Star, but they need to be flexible and allowed to change and evolve. Anne is still growing up, and that's a bit scary. Clinging to romantic daydreams shields Anne from the kind of vulnerability inherent in romance and relationships for the time being. And she still has plenty of time. It truly is such a beautiful way to end the book. Seeing Anne sort of move out of girlhood and into young womanhood. Mm-hmm. Moving on to our Birch Path ramble for today, let's continue to talk about young women protagonists who are not very interested in love or at least who are more interested in self-development than in love. As much as I love a romance, not every moment of a woman's life is occupied by the pursuit of love, shockingly. And it's bonkers to me that even now in 2023, so much fiction about women will always include some kind of romantic subplot, even if it doesn't have anything to do with the character's journey otherwise. It seems like a mandate, right? Like, if a book is about a woman, then love must be a plot point. Coming-of-age novels about young women nearly always have romance as either the main plot or a vital subplot. I honestly really struggled coming up with enough to even talk about here today. So Anne is really in this unique position of getting to grow into her young adult self without romance as the driving force. Of course, Anne does experience an absolutely delicious romantic arc over the course of the series as a whole. But in Anne of Avonlea as a standalone book, she has the chance to grow up a little first a chance that few other literary heroines get. To pick up where we left off last week, Joe March from Little Women is an interesting case study here, and I see some similarities between her and Anne. Joe, of course, has a wonderful friendship with her neighbor Laurie, who then proposes to her. 
Joe is horrified and declines and more or less runs off to the city at her first opportunity. Her resistance to romance is notable in part because she and Lori seem like such a great match. They get along well, they have many shared passions and interests, and even more importantly for the time, Lori's family is wealthy, and if Joe married Lori, she would ensure not only her own security but that of her family and younger sisters. However, Joe March understands that marriage, even marriage to a dear friend, would diminish her ability to make her way in the world as a writer and to be there for her family. When her sister Meg announces her engagement, Joe is worried that Meg will be taken from the family. It's similar to how Anne reacts to Diana's engagement here, right? Mm-hmm. Joe cannot make the same choice because she staunchly believes that her role in her family is to provide and protect. Joe also refuses to marry because she knows that marriage would require her to give up her dreams of writing her way to independence and escaping traditional gender roles entirely. Joe does not entirely manage to accomplish that in Little Women, and she does indeed marry, but she ultimately goes on to make a living as a writer and educator rather than living as a wife and mother. And I do believe that initially that is not how the book ended, and I think that- I think that's right. Louisa May Alcott was somewhat pressured by her editors to give Joe a more traditional ending. Yep. And I think that's why it was so important that over the course of Little Men and Joe's Boys that she gave Joe financial independence through her work as a writer and teacher. Prior to the March Sisters of Little Women, I actually couldn't think of any English language fiction with a young woman protagonist that allowed romance to take a back burner in favor of self-discovery and development. So if our kindred spirits out there listening can think of anything, please let me know. I'd love to expand my reading. But when you think of the sort of canonical authors of fiction about young women's lives, you think of Jane Austen, the Bronte sisters, George Eliot, Elizabeth Gaskell, and all of those come with this strong backbone of love and marriage. And it makes sense, right? In the 18th and 19th centuries, a woman's access to power directly corresponded with her ability to marry well. So to the extent that these authors were thinking about what it means to have agency as a young woman, they almost always had to put that in the context of marriage. That's one of the reasons that Joe March is such a striking protagonist. She knows full well that the best way to secure wealth and advantage is to marry Lori, and she chooses to reject him and make her own way in the world anyway. After Little Women, we do see that Alcott has opened the door, at least a crack, to tell the stories of young women who don't want to be married or who are even harmed by marriage. When Anne of Avonlea was published in 1911, it's interesting to note that although there were more of these stories of unhappy marriages, there were still very few, I mean really almost no, books about young women who weren't interested in marriage or who were prioritizing their own growth over marriage. Anne is really quite unique in this way, and I think it's another reason these books have stood the test of time. We can see in Anne a more modern girl, someone who wants to finish her education and begin to establish her career before she settles down. There are some similarities to Anne in Rebecca Randall of Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm, Kate Douglas Wiggins' 1913 book. In that book, Rebecca comes of age, but she does not marry, probably because in the end, she ends up inheriting money and she can live the rest of her life independently. So live in the dream, Rebecca. Good job. Good job. Take that inherited money. Yep. (laughs) And as we move more firmly into the 20th century, it becomes slightly more common to find books about young women where romance and marriage isn't the goal, but only slightly. Seriously, I challenge our listeners to come up with more than like a half a dozen or so. One of my favorites, though is the incredibly charming Cold Comfort Farm. 
Stella Gibbons' 1932 novel about Flora Post, a young woman from London who moves in with her family in the country, ostensibly until she marries, something she seems little inclined to do. (laughs) It's an absolutely wonderful comedy about how she modernizes the country folk with decidedly mixed results. If you guys haven't read Cold Comfort Farm, seriously read it. It's so adorable. In 1945, Betty Smith published A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, a coming-of-age story that doesn't entirely skip romance, but it is certainly not the focus for Francie Nolan, whose main ambition is to get out of poverty. And she succeeds. By the novel's end, she has accomplished more than her parents. She's literate, she's educated, she's even trained as a typist, and as the novel ends, she's about to enroll at the University of Michigan. In 1962, Madeline Langle introduced us to Meg Murray in the first novel of the Time Quintet, A Wrinkle in Time. Meg's adventures traveling through time and space with her brothers and their neighbor, Calvin O'Keefe, are another great example of a coming-of-age story where romance is decidedly on the back burner. Meg is an awkward teenager who loves math and her family, not a romantic heroine. In rereading those books, I'm always struck by this like 10-year time jump between the second book, A Wind in the Door, and the third book, A Swiftly Tilting Planet, when all of a sudden, Meg is totally grown up, having earned a PhD, and married Calvin. I know there must be a missing book somewhere in there where we would have gotten Meg and Calvin's love story, but I appreciate that for the purposes of these books, Madeline Langle keeps Meg's story focused on her role in the family's interdimensional adventures. And I absolutely love these books as a child and love them Mm -hmm. now. And it is very interesting to note that she left out Meg and Calvin's romance. And I appreciate that she doesn't try to cram it in because that's not the story she's trying to tell with these books. She doesn't try to. And Madeline Lengel knows how to tell that story. Her other famous series is about the Austin family and it's realistic fiction. It's not sci-fi fantasy. And it primarily concerns Vicki Austin growing up, falling in love, having crushes, figuring out how to be herself and what she wants in romance if she wants romance at all. Mm -hmm. Those are good books too, just very different. And I'm glad that Madeline Lengel kept her time quintet focused on the bigger journeys her characters were on. Yeah, it's nice that she gives Meg the space to kind of just be an awkward teen, be a math lover, and be an adventure heroine. And, you know, whatever was going on with her and Calvin was kind of happening off the page. (laughs) Yeah. Another timeless girls coming of age story that does not involve romance is Marilyn Robinson's 1980 novel Housekeeping, which is about two orphaned sisters living in rural Fingerbone, Idaho. A series of relatives come to take care of them, each less reliable and more problematic than the last, and it's ultimately a story about intergenerational trauma and growing up lonely and unloved. With its beautiful depictions of the natural world and incisive commentary about small town life, housekeeping almost reminds me of Anne's story in a way, if Anne had never met Matthew and Marilla. As I was trying to brainstorm more coming-of-age stories where romance and marriage is not the focus, I remembered our conversation with Katie Stewart of Owl's Nest Publishing in our season one finale. We talked a lot about how many of the young adult books that are being published now feature romantic relationships that aren't always age-appropriate, especially for younger readers. We also discussed how, as younger readers ourselves, we often found the coming-of-age stories in genre fiction to be more interesting and more relevant for us. So I did want to turn to some classics of genre fiction, and sure enough, there are some great examples of books where a female main character's journey has very little to do with romance. The 1993 novel Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler, where a young woman escapes an unstable and violent community in a post-apocalyptic climate crisis, is one of my favorites. And although the book does end with her marriage, romance is decidedly an afterthought. Also, that book is frighteningly prescient. 
Ursula K. Le Guin's Earthsea series is another place to look for heroines who are coming into their own without a romantic plot. Not all of the books in the Earthsea series, but enough of them do have those strong female characters that don't necessarily come with some sort of romantic subplot. And another one I would recommend is Connie Willis's Doomsday Book. If you have not read Connie Willis yet, you have to start. Doomsday Book is a time travel story about a young historian and researcher who time travels to 14th century Oxford. I agree. I do think that fantasy or sci-fi books often give girls the experience of heroines who aren't focused on romance. My all-time fave, Tamara Pierce, and her heroines aren't focused on marriage, although many of them do have some sort of romantic experience as a subplot at some point. But none of her protagonists view marriage as their ultimate goal, and any romance that they may or may not have, they weigh against their bigger quests. Probably the best example is Keladry's journey from the Quartet Protector of the Small. And in that series, Keladry is the first girl to train openly as a knight. And in the books, Kel is primarily focused on her training and her goal of becoming and being a practicing knight. The books don't end in marriage, which I appreciate. And Kel's romance in later books is very secondary for her. In fact, she doesn't want a serious relationship, and when the guy starts hinting at marriage, Kel shuts it down because she knows that isn't something she wants in her immediate future and that her career as a knight would be sacrificed in a marriage. There just wouldn't be any way around it. I would really love to hear from some of our kindred spirits about other coming-of-age stories for young women that don't make love and romance the focal point. I have to believe that there are more out there, but they are really, really hard to find. I mean, I just went through like a century of English language literature, and I think I pulled out like six. Mm -hmm. There have to be more. (laughs) And I do think it's important to have that representation out there in literature. Not everybody has the desire or inclination to find romantic love, and plenty of young women choose, like Anne, to put romance on the back burner while while they figure out who they are. It's important to have these stories of self-discovery that aren't grounded in romantic connection, and to show women that their stories don't need romantic love to be relevant and legitimate and valuable. And it's also important for young women to have these books because young men have so many. I mean, truly, there are so many coming-of-age stories for young men that have nothing to do with love or romance or being desired. I literally just finished one. R.F. Kuang's Babel, which is fabulous, by the way. But it's this story about a young boy and his life story and his education and seeing the world. And there is only the merest tiny inkling, a teeny weeny blink and you'll miss it, little hint of romance. But I'm also thinking of, I mean, so many classics, Catcher in the Rye, On the Road, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, The Red Badge of Courage, The Call of the Wild, and like the entire Narnia and Lord of the Rings series. And that is just off the top of my head. Boys get the message that they can be anything, war heroes and anti-heroes, adventurers and outcasts, kings and legends. And the message for girls in coming of age books is that, sure, they can have some adventures too, but ultimately they will all become wives and mothers. Well, and I think when we look back on the history of young girls and young women in classic literature or over time, we Mm -hmm. often see that girls as adventurous protagonists ends when they hit puberty, when they move into marriageable age. There's a reason why all of the really memorable girl heroines are all 12 and under, right? Besides Anne herself, we can think of a million of those classic girls, Pollyanna, Caddy Woodlawn, Pippi Longstocking, a million. Sarah Crew, Mary Lennox, Harriet the Spy, Ramona Quimby, all these amazing girls who we love so much, they're all adolescents. 
as soon as they get old enough, they stop being protagonists. Right. Yeah. They stop being heroines and they start being girlfriends and wives. I know we need to do better. So seriously, kindred spirits, cheer me up and give me some other examples. You know what though? This actually makes me so grateful for Anne of Avonlea and for a book that is about a young woman who may be a romantic, who may have romantic yearnings in a sort of idealized way, but who isn't looking for romance in any real way whose ambitions are related to her education and career and whose love is reserved for friends and family. Well, now let's pivot and share a puffed sleeve moment that is something special and extra that we didn't need in the rest of this episode, but we love anyway. Mm. So I'm going to share a little moment in which we see how much Anne has grown in her feelings about her own looks. Charlotta IV pays Anne a rather sideways compliment by saying, I'd rather look like you than be pretty. She told Anne sincerely. (laughs) Anne laughed, sipped the honey from the tribute, and cast away the sting. Mm. She was used to taking her compliments mixed. Public opinion never agreed on Anne's looks. People who had heard her called handsome met her and were disappointed. People who had heard her call plain saw her and wondered where other people's eyes were. (laughs) Anne herself would never believe she had any claim to beauty. When she looked in the glass, all she saw was a little pale face with seven freckles on the nose thereof. Her mirror never revealed to her the elusive, ever-varying play of feeling that came and went like a rosy, illuminating flame or the charm of dream and laughter alternating in her big eyes. Mm. Well, good for Anne. I'm glad she's made peace with her looks. Although, you know, Reagan, I suspect she actually is very beautiful. She's just probably like kind of an uncommon beauty. I think now we have a lot of different ideas of beauty. And back then it seems like it was all about your hair color. (laughs) (laughs) So for my puff sleeve moment, I'm going to bring it back to your least favorite Anne of Avonlea character, Davy Keith. As much as young Davy loves and adores Anne, he can't quite subscribe to her particular brand of daydreaminess. There's a very sweet scene where he asks her where you go when you go to sleep, right? This is one of these like cute little kids say the darndest things moments. And Anne quotes a line of poetry in response saying, over the mountains of the moon, down the valley of the shadow. Davy is having none of this and tells Anne she's just speaking nonsense. I love Anne's wise reply. Of course I was, dear boy. Don't you know that it is only very foolish folk who talk sense all the time? Mm, I do love that. As always, we want to wrap up our episode today with some recommendations inspired by our topic. I'm feeling inspired by Miss Lavender and Mr. Irving's charming second chance romance. So I wanted to recommend some of my favorite second chance romance novels. Reagan, I don't know about you, but I love this trope. I think it's got to be in part due to growing up reading the Anne books and Pride and Prejudice and Persuasion. So that concept of getting it right the second time around and growing and changing and being a better person to be right for one another is something I really adore. I have to start with a fabulous contemporary romance, Tia Williams's Seven Days in June, which takes place in modern day Brooklyn and involves two writers who dated as teenagers and now reconnect as adults. She's a romance author and he is a lauded literary fiction author and they're both in town for an event honoring Black writers. They reconnect and sparks fly. And the thing that I find so impossibly romantic about this book is that they both have been writing about each other for all these years. My favorite historical second chance romance is Not Quite a Husband by Sherry Thomas, which involves a couple who married quite young, then separated to opposite ends of the world. 
until he tracks her down in India, where she's working as a physician, and they begin making their way home to England. Their romance is part adventure story, part flashbacks to their lives as a young married couple. If you love an adventure romance like Romancing the Stone or The Lost City, this is right in your wheelhouse. It's so emotional and exciting and so dang good. I love a good book recommendation. So thank you. Adding to my list. This week, I am inspired by beauty, as Anne is, and I'm going to recommend the art of Karen Hallian. You can find her on Etsy, but her art is sold a lot of other places as well. She does fantastic fan art, focusing on, but not exclusive to, inspiring women, both fictional and real life. So, of course, that includes Anne. I own several prints, postcards, and pins that feature her art. I especially love a postcard that shows a tableau of strong fictional women under the text that says, ask us about our feminist revolution. Ah, (laughs) okay. I'm looking at this right now in her Etsy store. I've seen this art in your house, so I already kind of knew what to look for. These are so good. So it's like a pop culture figure or like a fictional character sort of in profile. And then next to them would be a defining word. So like think Hermione Granger and then next to her is learn. They're really, really pretty. And next to Anne, Anne's word is imagine. Which, Um, of course, sums up our girl. These are so great. She also has a bunch of pins. You can really go down a rabbit hole on her Etsy shop. It's not available on her Etsy shop, but I believe I found them on Amazon. I have a puzzle that is her She Series collage, pop culture collage, which we really love in our household. And my daughter has a poster of that tableau of all these strong pop culture women on her wall, which I really love for her. So if oh, you these are her- so good. Okay. There's an Eliza Hamilton. one. Uh-huh. Oh, we've got that. <laughs> or no, no, no. There's sorry. An Angelica Schuyler one. Uh-huh. Where the word is work. <laughs> these are so great. <laughs> My daughter has one. I gave her this one when she was really deep in her Hamilton phase. She has another postcard where it's the three sisters holding uh-huh. up the declaration of independence with uh, the word men crossed out. Oh, Uh, sure. And it says, I want a revelation. So she's got some great work. If you love nerdy feminist art, I highly recommend Karen Hallian's work. You will definitely find something that you love there. These are so great. I want to stock up for my home office. Yes. Yes. They are absolutely perfect for the home office for sure. Kindred spirits, we want to thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you and invite you to check us out on Instagram at kindredspirits.bookclub and on Twitter at KSBCpod. We'd love to hear your Anne-related thoughts and opinions. To help other kindred spirits find their way here, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. Join us next episode as we begin our discussion of Anne of the Island. Take care. We'll talk to you soon. Bye, kindred spirits.